Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care. My name is Casey Davis. I'm your host. And today we are with Dr. Leslie Hatchgale, PhD. Yeah, you, I want to put the doctor in there every time. Leslie and I have been following each other on TikTok for a while. And Leslie, will you just sort of introduce yourself? Tell us what you do, who you are. Wow. Okay. So like a big question, right? So I have a professional organizing business, Declare Order Professional Organizing. I've been doing that for about 12 years. Prior to that, it was an educator in early childhood special education. So I came to professional organizing from a place of looking at people's strengths and what they're good at and using that to teach them how to help them make changes in their space. And I wasn't so concerned with sort of the middle of the bell curve way of organizing. Then as I'm going along and I'm doing those things, I really fell into learning more about people who have hoarding challenges. And it kind of reminded me of the early childhood special education days of when I was working with children with autism, autistic students, and we were just learning. This was right at the beginning of learning how to really teach them and educate. And we had picture schedules and it was all very groundbreaking. We had little Polaroid cameras. And this reminded me of that. I felt like the people with hoarding challenges that I was seeing on those TV shows weren't being seen and heard properly. So that was, I ended up doing a deep dive into it and thought, I need to study this more. And then I had like this midlife crisis PhD. I want to talk about the show Hoarders. I just want your thoughts, your insights. That's how I found out about it, about hoarding, was from what I call it, those TV shows, right? Hoarders and Hoarding Buried Alive. And I was watching those. I was not a professional organizer at the time. And that's where I had this reaction. Like, this is odd to me that they're coming in and they're meeting a person in a time of stress and they're forcing them to do something that's unnatural and uncomfortable. And then the families are all fighting and it just was really uncomfortable, but I couldn't put my finger on why exactly. And I thought, I'm going to write a book, which I have done. <laughs> it's a middle grade fiction novel. It just hasn't made it out of the uh, computer yet. But from the point of view of a child living in a home, because that was my background, right? So I was trying to picture like, how is child development impacted by living this way. And in my research, I found out about professional organizing. So I, the long way around to say, I end up being a professional organizer. And four months later, someone who I had met, the president of my local chapter of organizers said, we've been called to do an episode. Do you want to join us? Because she knew she and I had talked. So here I am four months into starting a business. I'm driving down to downstate Illinois to film an episode of Hoarders, you know, with Geraldine Thomas, who at the time was like kind of a superstar host and all that. And I learned very quickly that like it was just a TV show, right? They had a storyline. They brought in this dramatic team to, we were all volunteers and we did what we could to, but it was almost like they would move stuff out of the way to film the shot and then move it back. And, you know, I wasn't sure that the people were being helped necessarily. I mean, it, there's the clean out and it's addressing the immediate problem and making the environment safer. But I, I wasn't sure. But I did go on to do two more episodes of it as a volunteer on the team. And it's been over my journey of research and over a period of time that what I say now is that I find them exploitative. However, they have raised awareness about hoarding in an incredible way. There's no way that kind of reach could have happened. And so when I did my research study and I'm talking to people and they're saying, I didn't know that I grew up in a hoarded home. I didn't know I was a child of hoarding parents until I watched the TV shows. 
like, oh, that's what happened to me. Or I talked to people, interviewed people who identify as having hoarding challenges because of the TV show and they know they need to do something about it before it gets to that level. So I get phone calls from people and they'll say, I'm not like that on TV. You know, I'm not like that bad. But <laughs> Yeah. No, there is something really, well, first of all, I think one of the things that I appreciate doing and love doing and try to do on this podcast, is like taking a thing and doing like the most difficult human thing, which is holding it in all of its complexity, where it's like, there are parts of this that are we would maybe say negative. And then there are parts of this that we would say positive. And, and even that is not even the right language where it's like, sometimes a thing just is. And I think our tendency is to either want to hold it up and go, this is such a great thing, or we want to sort of push it down and go, here are all the problems with this. It's so awful. And it's a lot more difficult to just talk about something as you said, like, listen, there are some issues here and there are some ripple effects here and there's some ripple effects here. And I do totally resonate with what you're talking about because there's something about the recognition that what you're struggling with isn't unique where you realize like, oh, maybe I'm not broken. Like maybe this is something, not just my own falling apart inability to do something. Because if so many people are demonstrating this same pattern of behavior and it's even if it doesn't look exactly like mine, I don't know, but I feel like that offers a little bit of hope. Right. It gives you a sense of community, like a place to belong. I noticed that in comment sections when I've talked about this topic, even on TikTok, the people that identify as being children of hoarding parents, they can talk to each other and say, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize this was sort of a universal children of hoarding parents experience and they find some commonality and some common ground and there's something powerful in that, knowing it's not just you. Well, you have an interesting confluence of interests because one of the things that I did learn from the hoarding shows, to their credit, they did make a point to go into someone's background and talk about the trauma that they had experienced instead of just going in and being like, look, at, get a load of this, right? Like they connected it to like, there have been some real difficulties here that, you know, along with some other factors have led to this hoarding disorder or these hoarding tendencies. And I don't, you know, that's really the first, I mean, even with a counseling degree, that's the first time that I learned about that. Right. That's the most recent conference that I went to just the other weekend. It was even brought up, like, should it even be called hoarding disorder? Because there's so many co-occurring conditions and so many other things going on that why are we identifying it by just the most visible tip of the iceberg piece? Maybe it should be identified a different way, that hoarding is a symptom. That was just something that came to my attention that was, you know, a conversation that was had. You know what it reminds me of is, for those who are not familiar with, like, all of the mental health diagnoses are in a book, like a big diagnostic book. And with a lot of disorders, for example, like anorexia, when you get a diagnosis, there are also what's called subtypes. So like you can get a diagnosis of anorexia, and then you can also get a subtype of binge purge, which basically says like, this is a person that meets all the criteria for anorexia. And there are these other subset of symptoms where they are binging and purging over and over and over. Same with like ADHD, like you could get an inattentive type 
or a hyperactive type or a mixed type. And, you know, when you first brought that up, my first thought was like, I wonder if it like better fits a different disorder. It's just like hoarding type or with hoarding tendencies. Like you can sometimes like dock those things on. Right. So it'd be interesting to see where the research takes it over the next decade because it was just added as its own standalone diagnosis in 2013, where I think before it was, I don't want to say it incorrectly, but I think it was a subtype of OCD before. So you could have OCD with hoarding tendencies and then it's now its own. But now it's like, hmm, maybe the subtype was to your point, like maybe that's more accurate. So if somebody is listening and they don't really know anything about hoarding disorder, they might be surprised to hear that hoarding disorder was a subset of OCD. And even to this day, it's still in the chapter on obsessive disorders, or I don't remember what the, like, it's still kind of lumped in the similar disorders. They might be surprised to hear that it is close to OCD. So can you kind of explain why that is? Well, it has to do with compulsion, I mean, plain and simple. Like, it's but instead of compulsion for ritualistic behaviors around cleanliness, it's sort of compulsion for ritualistic behaviors about what to do with belongings. And many of the people's homes that I've been in that have these tendencies, it's fascinating. And I've, I've heard you talk about it, actually, I think, on a recent episode about dealing with the garbage and what to do with trash and how to process trash and keep it out of the landfill. And there's so many blocks that they have with being able to get rid of something for those reasons. Oh, I know what it was. It was the That Hoarder. It was a different podcast you were a guest on. And you talked about that. What was that? That hoarder, or what is it called? I, forget. <laughs> I can't remember. I've been on so many podcasts. I know what podcast you're talking about, but I can't remember the name of it. It's a good episode. Is 2024 bringing exciting or unexpected changes to your life? Here's a secret weapon to help you face those challenges with more confidence a great term life insurance policy. I can't believe that I am 37 years old and I am excited about life insurance, but life comes at you fast. I feel like yesterday I was 25 and I wasn't thinking about stuff like this, but when my husband and I got married and we started having kids, it was one of the first conversations that he brought up. Really, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to protect your family's financial future so you can focus on what's ahead, knowing your family's protected if something else unexpected happens. And I feel like I sleep better at night knowing that if something were to happen to he or I, that the other one could take care of our family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. It's all online and on your schedule. No appointments, scheduling, or piles of paperwork. Just apply when it's convenient for you. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So don't be somebody who finds when tragedy strikes, you're wishing that you would have made this choice. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at Meet fabric.com slash struggle. That's meetfabric.com slash struggle. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash struggle. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. If there's one thing I love, it is a product that is affordable, good for the environment, and saves space. And that's why I'm back to plug Earth Breeze, which is a detergent sheet. It is like throwing a dryer sheet into the wash, except instead of a dryer sheet, it is detergent. And it works really well. It keeps things really clean and you can do a subscription service so that it shows up at the right time. So not only do you not have to think about it when you're at the grocery store, you don't have to buy huge plastic jugs. You don't have to lug those heavy things home and you can feel better about your laundry. Making laundry a little bit easier has always been the name of the game with Earth Breeze. 
It fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. And that's it. Really, you just throw a sheet in with the laundry and watch it dissolve with any cycle, hot or cold. No measuring, no mess, and best of all, no wasteful plastic jug. Switching to EarthBreeze would not only make laundry easier for you, but easier on the planet. Right now, my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash struggle. That's earthbreeze.com slash struggle for 40% off your subscription. I'm someone who happens to believe that the chore of feeding myself is one of the most annoying care tasks. And that's why I really like Factor. And when I say I really like Factor, I mean, they shipped me some food and told me to eat it and make an ad. And I not only did that, but then I went back and spent my own money and bought more of them. And I can't wait till the box gets here. That's because Factor really does make eating easier. And this was on the heels of a doctor's appointment where I got very strict instructions to give my body better nutrients. So wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And they actually do taste good. You'll get over 35 different options a week to choose from. And even I, a very picky eater, always can find something that I like. I love that they are two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. They all take two minutes in the microwave. Snacks, smoothies, breakfast, dinner. You can discover a wide variety of easy options. Sign up and save now. We've done the math. Factor is actually less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. My own dietitian was stoked when I told her that I'd made this decision. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. So head over to factormeals.com slash struggle50 and use code struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. That's code struggle50 at factormeals.com slash struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. Even my husband says this is the best he's ever tried. And we've tried a lot of these. And the show hoarders showed like pretty extreme cases. Do you find that people are surprised to learn that maybe they're dealing with the same issue because their house does not look anything like those sort of extreme cases? I think if they've seen the television show, they know that it could end up that way. That seems to be the universal response. It's like, I don't want to end up like that. Or it's, you know, it's not as bad as that. Uh, People that have the awareness to say it's not as bad as that are usually not someone with hoarding challenges, by the way. Like there could be chronic disorganization, which is different than hoarding. So I guess I could take a second to say what I find the easiest way to explain the difference is, is with hoarding, it's like a stuffed salad where you've got socks with notebooks, with food wrappers, with glasses, with earrings, with hangers, where when it's chronic disorganization, usually it's a little bit more categorized than that. You might have a a room full of stuff, but it's all old clothes and shoes and some coats, you know, and, and, and but they're all jumbled, but it's not this stuffed salad that you get with the hoarding. Interesting. What is it that leads to the stuffed salad? It's just a way of going through the environment almost with like blinders on. It's so fascinating to watch someone with hoarding challenges when you're in their space because they put something to the side and then it's gone, right? And things just end up on top of each other because they're not delineating the different, oh, this is a plate. I should put the plate here so that I don't forget, you know, and you at least put maybe all your utensils at least in a similar place or, you know, they're, but it, things just kind of you watch it, it's called churning the behavior where they're going through their stuff without actually making decisions. And that churning 
So I learned that very early on working with someone with paperwork, they had to work with me because DCFS was on the case. The social worker discovered the conditions in the home. I would do it differently now and I would do more to address the children's, the child's experience because now I know more, but at the time I didn't, but I was in the home and working on bills. And what I decided was I would put the bills in plastic bags by type in the the gallon size bags. And we made a filing system of bags because the person with hoarding challenges would just pull out paper and it would spread everywhere. And it would get lost into piles because it just would all turn into this salad, right? The lettuce is everywhere uh, in between the olives and the carrots and everything else. But by having one little bag at a time, it didn't go as far or she could see in the bag and just pull out one or two items and put them back in. And it helped things to not get to undo the work that we had done, like in between appointments. What's interesting is that when I think of so I'm somebody who because of my ADHD, like experiences disorganization, and my house is pretty organized now, but it's still kind of messy. But one of the things that I am like hearing when you describe that is like, when I come to a room that's maybe like a doom room or a doom pile where everything's kind of all mixed together, and I want to organize it. The first step is like, pulling everything out and spreading it out and churning through everything. Because I'm like, I'm mentally trying to like, understand what's there, understand what do I need, understand what da 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 da. But then I move on to like the second phase of that, right? Which is making decisions about what I need or where it needs to go. That doesn't seem like a foreign thing to like churn and to like, I understand that, but it's almost like people get stuck there. Yes. Like it just starts looping. You know what I mean? Like it just starts looping and they can't move forward to the categorization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know this, like I've listened to people on the shows and stuff talk about how it's almost like this inability to really make decisions about what is important and what isn't because it seems like everything's important. Yes. And I've worked with clients before too, that they, you can really see that they don't know what to prioritize. And so I'm going to add colored paper to this or colored marker to this and make it more important. But then when everything in the room has all the different colors on it, then nothing's important again. And so teaching through and figuring out, helping someone learn. And I know that some of the techniques that some of the researchers, you know, that they've come up with are things like calling an, and you've probably heard this, calling an item a friend. In fact, I think I've seen, done post on that with your kids, like with their toys. Is it a friend? Is it an acquaintance? Or is it family? And helping to teach how to feel about the stuff and how to prioritize it. So I wanted to talk about children because one of the things that has been interesting with my channel, you know, learning, you kind of talked about the difference between individual psychology and community psychology. And I kind of heard a parallel to that because I am so used to one-on-one talking with someone and a kind of explaining concepts to them and tailoring those wording to that person to having this large audience where you have so many different people in the audience. And when I've been talking about care and self-care and care tasks, particularly about space, it's been really interesting to try and figure out the way to talk about that that is honoring to two different types of demographics at the same time. And one is that person or that parent who is like, let's take hoarding, for example, who is hoarding, who is struggling, 
who needs, as we know, like needs compassion and needs skills and to whom shame will send them further down the spiral. And I know that children that were traumatized or neglected in hoarding environments are listening and they so desperately want and need to hear that was wrong. You deserved better. You know, they should have done anything possible to get that help to make sure you were safe. And it's interesting to know both of those people are listening. And how do you validate and help and have compassion to both demographics? Because sometimes it feels like, you know, in order to validate children, you have to be like, yeah, that was that was the most screwed up thing that ever happened. And then, of course, somebody who's listening and is hoarding is now kind of falling apart because they're like, great, I'm damaging everyone. Why do I even try? And I'm curious if you can kind of speak to your experience and with learning about the effects it has on children and what the impact on children is. I've spent a lot of time over the past couple of years with the director of the Minor and Youth Initiative of the Children of Hoarders 501c3. It's a nonprofit. And what I've learned from her is they're just trying to raise awareness that it can be traumatic for children. And just being able to bring that up and talk about it is really helpful to be able to acknowledge it. And if there's someone that can be in that child's life to provide a different kind of role model, if that child can seek out or the teenager that's watching, you know, helping them find someone, maybe it's going to the friend's house or, you know, another family member or teacher or somebody. So we're with the two of us and her organization, they're trying to raise awareness with social workers, with coaches trying to work on a, how to get that word out there that if they, people can learn to identify, I'm talking to a child that might be living in a house that is has hoarding going on, but I can't do anything because I'm just the soccer coach. But this is how I can help this child, maybe in being aware of things that can help that child be get past some of the, and be a stronger, more resilient little person. But then the parent, because you can't necessarily get in and make a change. And then the parents, and I guess I have in my head from podcasts I listened to with you a couple of weeks ago, that just the parent just, they might not be able to acknowledge it at that point, but just if they can and know that their child can see them making that effort to make a little bit of a change. But that's not always realistic. Those two things are going to happen at the same time. I think that's really important because, you know, if all you've ever been exposed to are like the hoarding shows, it really does feel like, okay, what the option is to fix this problem, you know, hire all these people, get all these people on site, clean everything out, like make sure they have a safe place. And in reality, like you said, the soccer coach, the next door neighbor, the teacher, the person that is coming in contact with a child that's living in in maybe a hoarded environment They don't have those resources. They can't make those things. And it it can feel so powerless to go, okay, as I'm thinking, like even as a therapist, if I have a client that is struggling with hoarding and I know they're small children and I'm going, okay, well, I don't have like the resources of a hoarding show, but the idea that there are small things we can do to mitigate impact. And even as a therapist thinking like there are, there could be a harm reduction approach that can still be honoring and helpful. And 
you know, that's something that I run into a lot when people are listening to me is we get so stuck on these all or nothing black and white thinking that sometimes you'll hear someone say, oh my God, the idea that I could just do one dish. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, if I'm sitting in an environment that there's a lot of hoarding going on and and I'm thinking the only option to help my child is I have to figure out how to fix all of this. When in reality, like maybe there's some more reachable goals in regards to that child's room. And things that don't focus on the stuff. Like one kind of occupation that's just starting to come into the conversation now is occupational therapy, in part because they're the ones who maybe you can get insurance to cover. But what an occupational therapist can do is to come in and make sure that you won't fall down because of the way this is set up. And they don't look at organizing and sorting. And they're looking at how can I make it so that you can walk to the bathroom safely and use the sink and place this glass here and it won't fall over and And so bringing them into the conversation now is a nice neutral option that's starting to gain awareness. So that way it's not just focusing on, you got to get rid of all this. It's how can we make it safer and more functional for you? And so if they could think about it that way to help the child, you don't want things, the pile to fall on them, for example, you know, the piles get high and they get tumbly. And so what can we do to just rearrange that? so that you can walk through here without twisting your body. And I like what you said about like, if that child can see that parent just making an effort, because a lot of times when I speak to children that have gone through really any kind of, especially neglectful environment, obviously, like, no matter what, living in a hoarded environment is going to cause distress to a person because it's just not functional. And it and it's hard to live in. But there's always this layer of pain that really goes even deeper than that with a child where they go like, my mom didn't care enough. She didn't see. And I know as a mom, like when we struggle, it's really like I've never had a struggle where I've thought my children aren't worth it. But I also know from my background with addiction and with other sort of disorders like that, that as a child, what you feel like is if I was good enough, if I was worthy enough, this person would be able like this person would make me more important than this struggle. And I think we can't underestimate the impact that a child observing a parent just try, even if it doesn't change the function, the environment, you know what I mean? Like the amount, the like, what's the term that we use for like, it's like when someone experiences trauma, there are factors that can like mitigate the harm of that trauma. I don't know. Everyone's listening to this, screaming it at their radio, they know, and I can't think of it. Um, But anyways, you know what I mean? Like, I think that can't be understated is like, even if you feel hopeless to change, like it can be a huge change to your child to just observe that messaging of you are worth it. I am trying. Here's a small thing that I'm doing. When it comes to hoarding where it's really severe, they might not be ready to do that yet. But even just thinking about it, like I've learned a lot about stages of readiness and even just becoming aware that you need to do something. That means that the next step is maybe planning to do something. (laughs) And then the next step is doing something. So even if you're not doing something yet, keep thinking about it. Keep sitting in that space of maybe I should be doing something because that's progress. If you've gone from not doing anything to just thinking about it, because that's the only place you can go from, you know. 
that's great advice because I think sometimes when we think about changing and we don't, we end up bailing on that stage because we think, well, I'm thinking about it, but I'm not doing it. What a piece of junk I am. I shouldn't like, I don't even know why I'm kidding myself. And then we go back into kind of a denial when in reality, like of the stages of change, the first stage is thinking about changing. And so I love your encouragement to no, no, stay there, stay there, stay there. That's good. It's good to be there. Don't beat yourself up that you're not the next one yet. Stay there because that you have to be there in order to get to the next one, right? Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. So I'm wondering if we can close with maybe a couple of pieces of like practical advice or moves. I would love if you can remember any of the practical things that the organization was talking about for like what you can do for a child that you notice is in a hoarding environment. Oh, right. So you want to give them a way to talk about what's going on and they may not be able to identify what's going on. So one of the things that we're working on is this sort of icebreaker worksheet for people in the community to use when they think that might be something that's going on. And it, so it's questions like, what is it like where you sleep? You know, tell me about your sleeping environment because in a situation where there's hoarding, the child is probably not in their own bedroom with a door they can close and sleeping on a bed. They're probably in the couch in the living room surround. You know, so those questions about like, what is that like? What is sleeping like? Or, do you often run late for things because the parent might not be able to get 
coordinated with their schedule to get, and that's, I mean, that's a general one, but they all impact and add up over a period of time. Or can you not have appliances fixed in your home because you can't let anyone in? I mean, we didn't really talk about secrecy and shame and all that, but you know, that's a whole other thing. But so being able to just kind of, you know, almost roundabout way, you know, asking questions about the conditions of the home without pointing fingers and without saying, you just be like, are you able to use the stove or the bath? And kind of going through those questions as an assessment or a way to an icebreaker to start the conversation. And that way you can learn a little bit about what their daily experience is like. Well, I can imagine like even something as simple as like bringing a child a lunch if you know that like they don't have a sanitary environment to prepare food, or if you know, like the fridge hasn't been opened in so long, like I think sometimes as people, we're not very good dealing with the powerlessness that we can feel in the face of somebody else's pain that we can't fix. Well, I was going to say, it's easier to just kind of shut down than to wade into it and do the one thing that you can do and just learn to deal with the hopelessness. Yeah. And I worked as a before and after school care director for a few years recently in addition to organizing. And one of the things I noticed was sometimes in schools, like a child who's not prepared for school, is not ready, their backpack is a mess, their desk is a mess, they get picked on or the teacher, they're always in trouble. Instead of asking, why is that child that way? Why are they coming unprepared? What maybe is going on in the house? How can I teach that child rather than expect them to know? Because it may be that no one's teaching them so your videos about cleaning and people, I think they even were asking you, like, can you just show us how to clean? Because we, no one ever taught us, right? So being, if you're coming into contact with a child who isn't coming prepared, is there something you can teach them? Because sometimes children reporting parents have to be their own parent, but with those skills, they can be, they can learn to do those things and do their own laundry and make their own lunch and some of those things, but they don't know they can. But if someone gives them those tools, to teach them how, then it's easier for them to be more resilient later when they're adults and they come with those skills. I love the schools that I've seen that have put in like a hygiene closet where a student can come in and get a bottle of shampoo. They can come in early and get their hair brushed and braided because, and not just hoarding, but like you just really don't know where students are coming from and to have a safe place for them to go get ready before they go into class. So they're not experiencing that peer bullying or teasing or just that spotlight that goes on them. I think that's a great also like community led thing. Like if you are associated with a public school, if you live near a public school, if you're looking for a way to be involved with your child's school, I think having something like that can make a big change for all sorts of children. Okay. What about somebody who's listening and they're going, okay, this is me. This is me. And I've been needing to reach out for help. Like, do you have any little actionable pieces about reaching out for help? Like who do they even call about that? Because obviously not everybody, you know, do I call an organizer? Do I call a therapist? Do I call, like, what do I call? Right. Well, that's really the million dollar question, right? What are you ready to call? Like, are you ready to just talk and call therapists and you have access to that kind of support and you can pay for that or how that would work for you. Does that sound appealing? Um, it doesn't have to be an organizer to start. Like it doesn't, you can be an occupational therapist to start, you know, to help if you're worried you're going to fall and hurt, break your hip or something. 
starting with an organizer, sometimes you have to make sure that that person is trained and they know. So you call a few people and talk and see how they, I get referrals more often than not from other organizers in my area because they know they can't ethically do and help a person that calls. And let's see. So you see what you're comfortable with, what sounds like something, but one of the things you also might think about is what can you do maybe there's you can't do anything about the stuff right now because you're not ready but you could do something for your financial health you could change your amazon shopping habits your qvc shopping habits and take that credit card off of the account and slow the roll of the stuff coming in that you know you're not going to let out could be one thing that's like okay well i could do that i could do something with financial and get control of that or maybe social you know you want to be able your daughter won't allow the kids to come over because maybe there's one room that you could get to where you could agree that it would be safe to have the grandkids come over or a friend come over. So you're fixing your social health. And I will say this, I don't in general have a lot of faith in CPS because of historically how biased they can be. But I do know in there have been times where, you know, me or someone I work with, because we are mandatory reporters, if we find out about um, an abusive or neglectful environment, and there are definitely some stages of hoarding that would be inclu- that would be included in that, we are mandated to call the state and we could lose our license if we don't. And what I've seen for, and so this is kind of a note for professionals as well, but what I've seen work well when you have to make that mandatory reporting, but you, you know, oh God, this is going to really sever the relationship. This is going to bring all of these like worse things onto this person is to reach out to that person and just be honest with them and say, here's the situation. Here's what I have to do. Here's what I think we can do together to mitigate the most harm and get the most help, which is to have that person, if they're willing, join you on that call to be able to say, I've talked with my therapist. She's told me she has to call. And to be honest, I'm hoping you can help me. And the other thing communities can do is get the ADA the American Disability Act, invoke that because that gives you more time. If the city's saying you have to do this in two weeks, say, no, no, this person cannot actually do that in two weeks because you can see they have this disability. And and that's another new way of approaching. And so it can take, give them six months instead of two weeks. And that awareness is increasing in communities as well. Thank you for mentioning that. But yeah, but as a professional, again, it's not like some, oh, this is definitely not going to be harmful to you anymore. But it certainly can go a long way, especially in the specific caseworkers that get assigned to you. They're impressions coming and it is it's a little like kind of getting ahead of what might be their bias of you know how do i need to deal with this how do i you know how strict do i it's like okay i'm sitting with my client they're hoping you have the resources to help they're hoping you can help them and sometimes that first impression can help mitigate the trauma and the disruption and the harm that can be caused by something like cps or adult protective services Well, Leslie, thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. I appreciate you just jumping on with me and winging it with me. I will link uh, some of the things that you mentioned. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Real truth alert. Pregnancy, birth, and having a baby isn't all sunshine and rainbows. I wish it were. But the reality is that many people struggle and suffer through this time without the right help or even knowing what they're dealing with. 
I'm perinatal psychologist Dr. Katayun Kayani, also known as Dr. Kat. My podcast, Mom in Mind, aims to shine a light on the difficult reality that so many hopeful and new parents experience and raise the volume on how we can better support mental health, which is a big part of our overall health. Episodes include personal stories from people who have healed through things like pregnancy and postpartum anxiety, depression, PTSD, and so much more. I also talk with specialists and experts who explain and educate on these conditions. All of this to support parents to know that they are not alone, that healing is possible, and there are resources that can help you today. Listen into Mom and Mind and walk with me through the world of perinatal mental health.